0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to John Garth, author of The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, published last year by Princeton University Press. Professor Garth, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Stentor. Good, uh, Good to talk to you, and thank you for having me.
0: Okay, to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: uh well the first point is a correction i'm i'm uh in no regard a professor mm-hmm. at least not in in the british sense i occasionally teach at university level um in the us so i suppose in that respect uh people have called me professor but it always seems rather strange to me anyway um i came to write the book uh as a res- hang on, let me sorry let me um just think that through again Yeah, my background is actually in journalism. Um, I took an English degree, English Language and Literature, um, back in the 1980s at Oxford, uh, which set me up pretty well uh, to write criticism and do literary analysis. But it didn't set me up particularly well to study Tolkien. I then learned to write in a different way as a journalist and also to research, which was quite vital. And I came to writing this particular book originally as a a result of writing a book called Tolkien and the Great War, which is published in the US by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, uh, and that came out in 2003. And there were sections of that which took me into thinking about the the landscapes of the war and how they influence parts of The Lord of the Rings. And I wrote some papers after that book, some conference papers dealing with the dead marshes in The Lord of the Rings. So I was already thinking about this issue of how a, a real landscape could help to inspire a fantasy landscape. And then in 2015, I began a year, a, a nine month period as a, um, a fellow of the Black Mountain Institute at the um University of Nevada in Las Vegas and there I was writing another book on Tolkien but again I found myself repeatedly coming back to particular locales that seemed to me to be touchstones for Tolkien um, they seemed to have uh, he seemed to have visited them at key points in his life um, they seemed to have made key differences to his writing so. Following that, uh, I happened to be chatting to an old colleague of mine uh, from the London Evening Standard, which is London's daily newspaper. And I used to work for the Evening Standard. I worked there for 13 years. And my colleague, Victoria Summerlee, um, now writes books about English gardens. And she just said to me, Quite casually, I think that my publisher would really love a book by you on places that inspired Tolkien, and I think she and the publisher were imagining something uh, very much in the coffee table genre where the pictures are perhaps more important than the text, an easy book to write, and it was quite a sensible suggestion um. uh, since I'm not an academic I'm a freelance of course I have uh, difficulties justifying the time that I want and need to spend on researching Tolkien so dealing with a topic that I could write on in a an efficient um, and straightforward way using material that I already had in hand Um, seemed like a really good prospect so I I went to the publisher and they were quite excited um, and I sat down to write it and of course it did take me uh, quite a bit longer than I expected um, though I had been very optimistic in thinking that I could turn it around in three months it took me about eight and then there was a period of time when I was working with the publisher on the uh, picture selection and to some extent on the layout of the book it's a really beautiful book you've got to see it to believe it, um, so there we are. Yeah, that was it's a bit of a complicated um, story, but uh, that's how I produced the book, and it and it is actually much richer than I expected. It really uh, it was a complex thing to produce um, with many in t- internal interconnections um, because of its theme. It's not something that one could tell uh, a biographical story from in chronological order, as I had done with my book, Tolkien and the Great War. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's worked out very well. It's going down, it's going down pretty well. It's, it's just been nominated for a Tolkien Society Award. Um, that's the Tolkien Society of Great Britain. Um, and it's just come out in Germany, where there seem to be daily blog reviews of it, saying uh, uh, what a wonderful book it is. So that's very gratifying.
0: Yeah, and I can uh, agree about when you said the illustrations are very important. Uh, it's a, a very richly illustrated book. You've got uh, you know modern photos of some of the places you're talking about. You've got historical photos. You've got a bunch of Tolkien's own uh, illustrations that he did. You've got uh, some maps and uh, diagrams that were produced uh, for the book. So actually, since that topic has come up uh could you tell us a bit about what what was the process like in finding and selecting all of those uh illustrations
1: well first of all yes i i I wanted quite specifically to um to use images that of, of the world as tolkien would have seen it so contemporary photography um images by fellow artists working at the time tolkien was alive to help give a flavour of um, a whole culture, Tolkien as part of a whole culture, not as some oddity separate from it. Um, I wanted to include maps that would help people understand what was where, um, and therefore contemporary maps of the world as it was at that time, because it has changed quite a lot in the last hundred years, um, particularly the area... Uh, around the West Midlands English city of Birmingham, um, which has grown enormously uh, since Tolkien lived in a little village on the outskirts. And that little village now no longer exists because it's, it's completely covered over by suburban housing. So the process was... Um, oh, uh, one other feature. The publisher um, very was very, very keen to get the agreement of the Tolkien estate to use some of Tolkien's own artwork in there. And that seemed to me to be a fine idea, too, because it shows Tolkien's vision. And my research into his creative processes is all about Tolkien's vision. Um, The publisher, when I'd finished writing the book, asked me to nominate some points from each chapter that would make potentially good visual material so I sent them a list they set their picture researcher to work on that picture researcher sent back uh, a set of images to me um and I went through them and I I said no no this doesn't work uh, this is great um and we worked we worked that way it was it was like a tennis match it was bouncing ideas backwards and forwards um and I did a fair bit of the picture research myself in the end because, well, clearly I knew more about the subject than the picture researcher possibly could. Um, and I thoroughly enjoy it, too. I, I used to lay out news pages for newspapers. Um, so this was kind of harking back to that time for me.
0: Okay. So... I read this book uh, because I'm a major Tolkien fan, Um, but I asked you to come on this show because I think that this is a book that would be of interest to people who care about geography and landscape, even if they're more casual readers of Tolkien. So could you talk a bit about how you saw the audience for this book and who you think would benefit from reading it?
1: I'm always uh, sort of poised between wanting to appeal to people who are you know deeply knowledgeable and deeply interested in a topic um, and also to the general reader and I think this comes from my journalistic background so at the evening standard I would often be handed quite complex science stories written by the science correspondent and I would have to edit them I was I was there as a, a, an editor rather than a writer uh, edit them for public consumption um, and make those Complex ideas, um, not not dumb them down, um, but uh, clarify them. So the aim the, the the book is simply aimed at anyone who's interested. Um, and I do think that well, first of all, it, it really ought to hit the spot with um, the, the the dedicated and curious Tolkien fan of of, of which there are many many hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions um across the world because Tolkien encourages curiosity. He makes you look at the real world around you. That's why there are so many people who think they've walked into some scene that must have inspired Tolkien. You know, there are places around the world where people have said, oh, Tolkien must have been here because it's so much like Middle-earth, you know. Um, and then again, there is as you say, a, a wider kind of cultural relevance to this, which is, and I think this is, you can, you can see this in books that are being published now about literature and art, certainly in Britain, I imagine in the US as well, there is a, a growing interest in the, uh, the way we as human beings uh, respond to our environment. Um, through literature and art, how that reflects our attitudes um, to our own habitat, um, how our habitat shapes us. So this is, I think, uh, part of that wider literary or artistic or cultural conversation.
0: And I think I could use my own career as kind of an illustration of the, the points you're making there because I started studying geography because of Tolkien that the seeing the worlds that he put together got me interested in in these kind of topics Um, and i think this book does a good job of of illustrating uh that that dimension to his work and to uh the landscapes that uh he was living in so now i want to kind of turn and talk about some of the content of the book give people sort of a a taste of some of the things that they they'll get from uh, reading it so uh, to start off with so tolkien famously said in one of his letters that he began his writing uh, with the ambition to write quote a mythology for england so could you explain what he meant by that and to what extent that's uh, a helpful framework for understanding uh, his writing britain did and does have the
1: Arthurian stories, but Tolkien felt that they had their shortcomings. First of all, uh, their origin is Celtic rather than English. So Tolkien was fascinated by Anglo-Saxon culture, the the culture of the Germanic uh, people who arrived um, shortly after the the retreat of the Roman Empire from, from Britain. And he also, I think, wanted to... Imagine a, a mythology for England that, that included a pantheon and all those things that, that he saw in the, the, the Greek and the Roman uh, mythologies. These were templates for him. And that's what he tried to start building right in the the, the First World War, in fact. Um, and, and in my, my first book, Tolkien and the Great War, I tried to express the many complex ways in which... Uh, the timing of that is important, but quite clearly, when you are uh, a nation fighting uh, perhaps for survival, um, you are going to be very interested in what you're fighting for and I think I think that that building of an English mythology was one of those um, was a project that Tolkien pursued partly for that reason
0: okay, so in the book, you get into some really fine-grained geographical research at times, linking certain places and ideas in Middle Earth to specific places in the real world that uh, Tolkien visited or, or experienced. So you talk about things like his hiking trip that he took in the Alps and how that connects to certain places in Middle Earth. You talk about the specific uh patch of woods where he watched his wife edith dance that became the inspiration for the baron and luthien story so i was wondering if you could pick out uh one example like that and kind of talk us through the the basics of how you made that connection between tolkien's works and uh, a specific location to give us kind of a flavor of some of the uh, research that goes into this book
1: Well, let's take the Beryl and Lúthian example, since you mentioned that, and it's a a relatively straightforward one. Um, The the story is perhaps one that that people are not familiar with if they haven't read the Silmarillion. It is mentioned in The Lord of the Rings, um, where the hobbits are with Aragorn Strider on Weathertop, and he sings a song about Beren and Luthien, how this mortal warrior Beren sees an elf princess dancing in a fairy wood um, and they fall in love and this is an impossible love because she's immortal and he's mortal but somehow they overcome these things together. This is a story Tolkien wrote in 1917 and in a a late letter he wrote... um, Shortly after the death of his wife, Edith, um, he told his son, Christopher, um, she, Edith, was my luthian. She danced for me in a small wood, and that was the the inspiration for that story. Um, And it was when I was um, with the Lancashire Fusiliers, uh, an army battalion, in Yorkshire during the first world war so that those those were the uh the the clues i had and this this story was so important to tolkien that he had the name luthien carved on his wife's gravestone um, and now that he is buried with her the name beren is also on that tombstone and this is one of those things where you do see you know you can quite clearly see that he's he's for, for an artist who's very, very wary about talking of his inspirations or, um, or stating autobiographical, autobiographical intent, he has done so there quite definitively. So I went to that area of Yorkshire uh, in which he was with the Lancashire Fusiliers uh, in 1917. He had fought in the Battle of the Somme the previous year in northern France. And he had been, he'd fallen sick there with something called trench fever. And he'd been brought home on a hospital ship. And he'd spent time in hospitals and convalescing. And then he'd been sent to Yorkshire to join this battalion that was training new recruits and helping to guard the coast of Britain um, against possible attack across the North Sea from Germany. And I knew the name of the camp. The army camp at which he had been based, um, and I visited that. Although there's nothing left of it now, and I knew the name of the the little village, Rus, near which he said that this wood, in which Edith had danced, stood, and I had modern maps, detailed modern ordnance survey maps. That's the official uh, map maker in Britain, as well as. Photocopies of Ordnance Survey maps from uh, his era. And there were actually very, very few woods in the landscape uh, now or then. It's a very flat and rather dull um, landscape apart from these woodlands. But there is one right next to the church, in fact, at the, at the southern end of this village. And the key point about it is that, like the wood that Tolkien describes, In his um, reminiscence and in his story, every year this wood grows a glorious crop of a flower called cow parsley, which he calls by its colloquial name, which is hemlock. Uh, Hemlock, in this case, being nothing to do with um, the poison, belladonna, or the uh, hemlock pine, the tree, which is... um, Native to North America, but not to Britain. So this this flower looks like a, a white umbrella of florets of tiny flowers, and it, they grow in such profusion that when you look at it, you just look. It looks like you're looking at a sea of froth, and it would have made a, an intensely um, bright and memorable backdrop to this wonderful dance that Edith Tolkien did. At a time when Tolkien was still recovering from the horrors and shocks of uh, the Battle of the Somme and of losing two of his three closest friends in that battle, um, we still don't know definitively whether that is the wood in question. And I suppose there's, there's always a possibility that some other information will come to light that will prove or disprove my case. But like everything else, I've put it to the test of um, likelihood. I've looked at other options and nothing seems to fit the bill apart from this one would.
0: Okay, so then the, the flip side to something like that is that you also have to debunk sometimes claims that people make that a certain place was what inspired a certain thing uh, in Tolkien. And so that kind of raises the question of why do you think people are so eager to tie places to Tolkien, to want to say this, this was the place that inspired uh, this or that in Tolkien?
1: I think there are two reasons and one is um, really positive and understandable. And uh, this is the one I've talked about earlier, which is that, you know, when you're a a devotee, a a devoted wanderer in middle earth, um, you do see parallels with places in the real world that you visit, um, particularly places of striking natural beauty or, or places of devastation, because Tolkien describes both those extremes so powerfully and vividly and memorably. And because when you're reading his books, you feel as though you're walking through his world. The And the upshot of that, as I said earlier, is that People reason uh, that if Tolkien had visited this place too, or if there's a chance he had visited this place, then surely it must have inspired something in Middle-earth. Now, this kind of instinct, positive as it is, uh, then gets picked up upon by publicists, um, people who are trying to boost visitors to their The pub they own, the hotel they run, um, the area for which they work on the tourist board, that kind of thing. And they are the people who tend to contact newspapers and say, hey, look, we've got this area that, you know, that inspired Tolkien, inspired the whole Lord of of the Rings. It is said that he uh, wrote most of the book in the back room of a pub here, whatever, you know, things like that. And the newspaper journalist, not being an expert in Tolkien or his biography, um, takes that uh, in good faith and reproduces it. Um, And and then, unfortunately, you get into a cyclical um, situation where the newspaper is cited on Wikipedia, um, and other newspapers or other media outlets look at Wikipedia and they take the information from there. And it's a it's a kind of what's the word for this? It's sort of self-confirmatory bias uh, which has no no or little truth in it Uh, and this applies i think to um, areas of ireland and lancashire in the north of england um, which yes tolkien visited uh, but he visited visited them too late for that to have influenced the writing of *The Lord of the Rings*, uh, which is, you know, of course, uh, you you can't be inspired prospectively by something you haven't yet visited, or not in the same way, anyway.
0: Okay, so some of the connections you discuss in the book, like his boyhood home in Sarehole or the trenches of World War One, are are pretty well known. You know, we know that those are definitely places that. Uh, Inspired Tolkien, but some of the other places that you talk about in the book are are more obscure. They're not uh, as well known. Uh, So, what would you say is the most surprising link that you found between a particular place and something in Tolkien's work? This is where it gets slightly more complicated because
1: the uh, the the reason why it's surprising is probably because the 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 root between the the place, the real place, and the imaginary place is slightly more complex. Um, so there is a tower near Oxford called Farringdon Folly. And this has never been on the Tolkien map, the Tolkien fandom map. No one had thought about it. Probably most people hadn't heard of it before. In fact, quite frankly, I hadn't heard of it before. And I used to live in Oxford. Um, the reason I think it, it, it inspired Tolkien is because in 1936, Tolkien gave a famous and very important lecture uh, about the Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf. This was this is uh, you know the the major piece of Old English literature, which everyone studies now. If you if you study Old English literature at all, you you're bound to study Beowulf. And in 1936, when Tolkien gave his talk. He was deeply frustrated by the way this poem, this, this fabulous heroic poem full of tragedy and um, heroism and beauty, uh, had been treated not as a work of art, a work of literature, but as a source for historical inquiry or archaeology, or, you know, all things that were valuable in themselves, but... The people pursuing them really were just exploiting the poem uh, for something which was not its core, not its core purpose. Its core purpose was to be a work of art. So Tolkien came up with what he called a little allegory to explain this situation. And in his allegory, he turned the, um, the Beowulf poet into a man who built a tower. And the critics are his neighbours and they don't understand why he's built the tower and they knock it over so that they can look at the old stones from which that tower was originally built. And Tolkien wrote this lecture and used this allegory just at the time when this tower, Farringdon Folly, had been built. It was built in the year earlier, 1935, and it was built uh, against noisy opposition from its neighbours who did not understand what the purpose of it was. You know, there were there were council committee meetings where uh, these kinds of criticisms were made. What the hell is this for? Um, and one of the responses was, well, it's for a great view. And the allegory, Tolkien's allegory in the Beowulf lecture ends with Tolkien saying, but from the top of that tower, the man could see the sea. Now, you can't see the sea from Farringdon Folly, but you can see it a, a wonderfully long way. And it seems clear to me that that went into the Beowulf lecture. And then beyond that, you can see that Tolkien took his allegorical towers with its, a tower with its wonderful view of the sea and planted it in the Lord of the Rings, because there are towers to the west of the Shire from which the elves or the Numenorean men of old could see the sea. Uh, and there, amusingly enough, it's the hobbits who are the neighbours who don't understand what these towers are for. Uh, so the, you know, the pattern passes over from Farringdon Folly into this academic lecture and then into the Lord of the Rings. As I say, the route is somewhat complicated, but nonetheless, each step of the way is demonstrably very, very reasonable. Um and i yeah i'm i've i'm completely convinced that Farrington folly was a a key point for tolkien
0: all right so the the book is full of of interesting uh elements and nuggets like that so i encourage all of our uh listeners here to check it out if this uh, interests you. So I'd like to now wrap up our conversation by asking what you're working on next. What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out?
1: I'm back to working on the book uh, that I began in Las Vegas uh, when I was a fellow of the Black Mountain Institute. Um, It is uh, tentatively called Tolkien's Mirror, and it's about how his Uh, creative writings developed against the backdrop of the crises of the 20th century. So it revisits uh, the First World War influence, which I talked about in Tolkien and the Great War, because I've got a lot more to say about that, um, particularly as that relates to what he wrote later. Uh, Tolkien and the Great War doesn't deal with The Lord of the Rings, for example, or The Hobbit. Um, So there's a great deal more to say.
0: Okay, well, we'll look forward to that book when it comes out. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you just heard a conversation with John Garth, author of Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, published last year by Princeton University Press.